All right, so, so at the Hannah household, one of our favorite things to watch on TV is Dude Perfect. All right, so hopefully you're at least somewhat familiar with Dude Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Um, so when it comes to Dude Perfect, though, then our favorite uh, thing to watch that they produce is called uh, their 30-minute episode, which they call Overtime. Okay. What was that? <laughs> Okay, so Overtime is uh, one of their 30-minute episodes, and then in that installment, it has, uh, they have different little segments. So they have everything from what they call Cool Not Cool, Absurd Records, where they're breaking records for the Guinness Book of World Records. They do Top Ten, et cetera, things like that. And then one feature in those segments is called Wheel Unfortunate. Okay, so what happens in Wheel Unfortunate is there's five hosts. They put all their names into a hat. Then, then one person pulls, out, pulls a name out of the hat, and then that person has to spin the unfortunate wheel, the wheel unfortunate, okay? So they go over, and, and then so they pull this name out of the hat. They go over. They, they spin this wheel, and on this wheel are a lot of really unfortunate things you would have to do, all right? So, so one time, uh, Garrett had to get braces, um, another time, Corey had to drive his car until he ran out of gas. Uh, there was a night Ty slept outside, fell into the creek, uh, was freezing cold. Um, one of them had to adopt a cat for a year. Um, they had one, somebody got put into a box of snakes. Somebody slept covered in sand. Uh, somebody was a human piece of French toast. Um, and then one was running around the block in a wizard costume uh, for, for a mile, having to run around the block. So, so they're all just, just really dumb things to make them look silly, funny, and so on. So, so I want you to, to take a, a look at two things that seem to be completely random in this process, right? So, so pulling the name out of the hat, right? So there's five names in there. In, in theory, it's a 20% chance that you're going to get picked. You, somebody reaches in, they pull it out. So that appears to be random. And then the person who, who is picked goes up and spins this wheel, and what it lands on, right, that appears to be random because nobody's stopping the wheel, nobody has a remote control, and they're, and they're making sure that it stops here or not here. So it, it, it appears to be completely random too, right? So, so whose name gets pulled, what they spin on the wheel is just a matter of luck, right? Or is it? Is it truly random, or is there something else behind it, right? Is it possible to change your fortune or change your luck? Does saying good luck actually help someone do better when he goes to his job interview? Do you think good thoughts can change the outcome of something? Now, these are not new questions. In fact, they have been around since creation. And man has always tried to make sense of the world, right? He's, he's always tried to figure out and explain why some things happen and why some things don't. Why does it seem like some people have so many good things happen to them? And why do some people always seem to be on the other side of success? So tonight we're going to take a look at this slogan, good luck, but, but more so in all the ways that that kind of concept is transmitted, right? So, so when people say things like, it was my destiny to get this job, or it was because of fate that we met, or I guess I just got lucky and won the lottery, 
right? In every one of those scenarios, there is an assumption of random chance determining what happens. And as Christians, we should examine this concept, right? We should see if it passes the scriptural test. Does the Bible speak of things happening randomly? Are luck, fate, chance, and destiny biblical ideas that we should embrace, or should we reject those? So in our study tonight, we're going to take a look and see that we must reject the lie of good or bad luck and live with confidence that God is in control of all things that have ever happened, are happening, or will happen. And it's good. If you're taking notes, I'll do it a little slower. We must reject the lie of good or bad luck and live with confidence that God is in control of all things that has ever happened, that are happening, or will happen, and it is good. <laughs> so we'll be looking at this in, in the two ways that we've looked at everything over the last two years. Number one, we must defend the faith against the lie of luck, fate, and chance. We must defend the faith against the lie of luck, fate, and chance. And number two, we must contend for the faith in the truth of God's sovereignty. We must contend for the faith in the truth of God's sovereignty. <clears throat> so the, this idea of wheel unfortunate didn't begin with dude perfect. I hate to break it to all you millennials. In some ways, you could say that it began with the TV show Wheel of Fortune, right? For some of us older time folks, right? Which is kind of what Wheel of Fortune is based on. Wheel of Fortune, which started in 1975, right? With Pat Sajak. That was a good 35 years before Dude Perfect began their show and more than a decade before any of them were born. But I'm telling you, this goes back long before 1975. In fact, it probably began about 3,000 years ago. Now, the reason that, that I put this little timeline up here is because I'm going to try to help you uh, just keep track. Because I do like, I think it's important to kind of keep in your mind where things fall t in terms of a timeline. Um, so I put that up there for you. Uh, please don't critique the gaps and saying, well, that's really not, it uh, doesn't really work. It's probably not as long, you know, it's in the ballpark, all right? Because so, I have creation here and creation kind of got crammed in. All right, because then we're, so then we get the fortunes wheel and so on. So, but but we're gonna get back here to the fortunes wheel and let's just say that's around three thousand years ago. Now that was three thousand years ago, but but we are gonna we're gonna bump up to about here when there was a philosopher. Uh, his name was Pesuvius, and this is this, just listen to what he had to say about fortune. Okay, because we're talking about fortunes wheel. Philosophers, this is this is a quote from him. And this would have been about, uh, he wrote this about 2,200 years ago. Philosophers say that fortune is insane and blind and stupid. And, and fortune is, is, is presented as a woman. Uh, not, no, I didn't mean it that way. Fortune is in historically, philosophically, uh, is, is presented as a woman with, with a wheel. So philosophers say that fortune is insane and blind and stupid. And they teach that she stands on a rolling sphere, spherical rock. They affirm that wherever chance pushes us in that direction, 
They repeat that she is blind for this reason, that she does not see where she's heading. They say she's insane because she is cruel, flaky, and unstable. Stupid because she can't distinguish between the worthy and the unworthy. Now, I want you to get uh, a picture that is presented here. Hey, can you guys... Can you guys not talk or just sit apart? Would that be good? Are you good? All right. Um, so I want you to get a picture that's presented here, right? There, there's this goddess, Fortune, and, and she's presented as if she's standing on a, a rolling rock, like that's spherical, right? And she's on this rock, right, which if you think about it already, it's, it's, it's like rolling, it's not stable, and it's as if it's getting pushed, and she's, and she's on it, she's, she's blind, she can't see, and, and then she every now and then falls into this wheel, and she spins it. And, and when she spins the wheel, whatever it lands on, for, for whatever, that, uh, whatever person that's going to be their quote-unquote fate, um, that's what happens to them. Right, so if it's if it's Felicity's the one that she's thinking about Fortune's wheel, she's she's rolling around, and then it says Felicity scores 25 points in a basketball game. That's her that's her fortune, right? But it could be that the next time Fortune is on this ball falling falling down, she spins the wheel, and and Felicity breaks her ankle going up for a layup, right? And the idea is that that it, it's completely random, that it just happens, and it just happens to people, and there's. There's no, there's no rhyme nor reason. It just, it just happens. Right? She doesn't judge the worthy or the unworthy. It's not like she's looking and saying, this person deserves this. This person deserves this. This is why I'm going to give this to this person. It just happens. So fortune's wheel, okay, so, so it would have started around here 3,000 years ago. This is when um, that particular philosopher I just read was writing about it. But if we bump it up here to Boethius, this was about 500 years or 500 B.C., which is about 500 years after Jesus was born. So Boethius was a, was a philosopher and a poet, too. All right, so, and this is when it became very popular. He wrote this uh, classic work called The Consolation of Philosophy. Sometimes people read that. I, I know I read that when I was in high school. Um, the Consolation of Philosophy, in, where, in which we meet this Roman goddess, Fortune. She spins a wheel that determines the fate of all the world, and she has a blindfold on. So she doesn't even know who it is. She's just spinning it, and that's what you get. It, it indicates that there is no plan, no purpose to anything. And I want you to listen to this description from Boethius because I think it's critical in seeing what we see today. So this is from Boethius. Having entrusted yourself to fortune's dominion, you must conform to your mistress's ways. What? Are you trying to halt the motion of her whirling wheel? Dimmest of fools that you are, you must realize that if the wheel stops turning, it ceases to be the course of chance. So just reflect on that last sentence one more time. You must realize that if the wheel stops turning, it ceases to be the course of chance. Right, so Boethius is saying that there are only two options to trying to determine why things happen the way they do. It's either completely random, with no purpose or plan, or there is something behind it dictating the outcome. If fortune or you are able to stop the wheel wherever you want, it is no longer chance. You can't say that things are random or by chance if somehow fortune could stop this wheel. Now, if it's the first that everything is totally random and by chance, then it's hard to defend any reason to do or not to do anything. Right? It's almost impossible to explain anything. Right? If chance rules, if everything's just an accident, if it just, uh, it, then there's no reward for hard work. 
right? There's no punishment for evil. There's no goal to achieve. There's no purpose to any event. In fact, concepts like good and evil, right and wrong, positive and neg negative, they're, they're truly meaningless because it's pointless to try and figure out why anything happens, why anything's the way they are. It's just fortune on her rolling ball with her blindfold spinning this wheel. The alternate view, and what Boethius is challenging his readers to think about, is that if the wheel stops spinning, it means someone is in control of it. It means what happens in the world isn't random or without purpose. But this brings about a new dilemma. If that's true, then who is controlling it and why? Which brings us to 2022, at the very end there. <laughs> what I think happens here is then people try to bring these two things together, chance and control. And our, our world will try to do whatever they can to make these two things fit, even though it's irrational and illogical. Our world still believes in chance and luck and fortune like, and destiny. They love talking about all that stuff. But they will try and tell you that you can create your own luck. You can create your own luck, right? So, so I went online. I went online to, s to see if people actually write about things like luck. How exactly do they describe luck? And I was shocked to find article after article after article of how you can be lucky. Scientifically proven ways that you can improve your luck and be lucky. And there, there are basically two primary ways it was argued that you can create your own luck. And I want you to hear something just right away. Then it's not luck. It's not random. If you're creating it, it's no longer random. But there's two basic ways. They go hand in hand most of the time, but, but I'm going to present them separately. One is through positive thinking. Okay? So I had this experience about 10 years ago. Uh, I was a member of the National Speakers Association, and uh, we had, like, a, an event where everybody was getting up and doing, like, a little five-minute, ten-minute presentation. And uh, this guy came up, and he's, uh, you wouldn't know him, but, but he is nationally known. This guy uh, has honorary doctorates. <coughs> uh, he is a great speaker. He really is. But one of the things he talked about is, uh, you know, it's a lot of this motivational speaking, a lot of this positive thinking stuff. So he, he came up, and he, you know, he said, people a lot of times want to know why I'm so successful. Uh, and he said it's basically because he wills things to happen. He wills them to happen. So the example he gave that was on a recent trip, he went to Walmart, and it was a super cold day. And as he pulled into the parking lot, he noticed that it was packed. You know, everybody was at Walmart that day, and he's like, man, I'm going to have to park way out here, and I'm going to have to walk across this icy cold parking lot to, to get inside. And he was kind of dreading that. But then he reminded himself, it doesn't have to be this way. So he simply began to believe he would get a good spot. And he told himself that as he pulled into the driveway. I will get a good spot. I, I demand it. I am saying this spot will be mine. And he replaced the negative thoughts of getting a bad parking spot with the positive thoughts of getting a good parking spot. And lo and behold, as he pulled up right in front of the doors, his car was backing out and he got the spot. And the crowd cheered. <laughs> what an incredible manifestation of reality. Believe it and receive it. Hmm. I can preach that. <laughs> 
Now, the second primary way that this is done, and I, real quick, side note, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do any research on it, so I was watching after the Super Bowl, um, uh, Odell Beckham's mom came up to him, and uh, if you're familiar, you know, he tore his ACL during the Super Bowl, and he was just weeping after the Super Bowl because, like, he still won a ring, and he was having a great game up until he tore his ACL, and, you know, he finally gets there, and uh, I didn't get to research this. I'm pretty sure that I was watching it. He's crying like this, and his mom's going, I manifested that, baby. <laughs> I manifested that for you, which, which is kind of this idea that you created it. Uh, I didn't get it. I don't want to disrespect OBJ's mom, so I, I want to hold off on that. But, but, but look it up and see if, if I'm correct, if that's what she said. Because that's, that's what you're saying. There, there is, you know, it's the name it, claim it, prosperity gospel that we've talked about before. You, you say it, and it becomes a reality. That, that's essentially what this is. So here's the second primary way this is done, is through manipulating a force or energy that seems to be in control of what happens. Okay, because you, you got you to gotta have something here that's in charge. So this can be done. How do you manipulate this force? It's by moving your furniture to just the right spot. Right, so this is called feng shui, right? Uh, I looked up something, and, and actually what color you paint your door, you should paint your door based on which way it's facing, um, you know, because if you don't, you're not inviting positive energy into your house. You're, this energy is, it needs to like spin. Like that's why the room has to be set up in a circle because it comes in and it needs to be able to make its way around. Okay. It, it, you also have to declutter your house. Um, I guess it's because the negative or the positive energy will trip <laughs> over your junk. That's why there's no positive energy in a kid's, a teenager's room, right? Because... There's no room for uh, the even positive or negative energy in that place. So, But, yeah, you, you want to have, because ne- clutter does bring in negative energy. Uh, or with certain charms. Okay, so perhaps you've seen the elephant. Uh, if, you've, if someone puts an elephant, it's, it's a good luck charm. Uh, the trunk needs to be up, just so you know. Uh, but pr- probably one you're more familiar with is the horseshoe. Now, there is some competing... Uh, Theories. Some would say you need to have it pointing up, you know, the two prongs pointing up because you don't want the luck to run out. But there's another one that says you should have it pointing down so that the luck falls out on the person walking through the door, right? So these are just all some brilliant ways that you can actually bring some more positive energy into your house. Now, now either in these cases, in either of these cases, this is what I want you to see right away, though. It is wrong to call it luck. Right? Since you're saying someone can manipulate circumstances with their thoughts or with lucky charms, not the cereal, but like your figurines. Now, there's a whole, uh, uh, there's a whole lot of other ways that the world tries to present these concepts. Right? Good things happen to good people. Everything happens for a reason. Your day will come. Well, think about why the world wants to do this, though. If everything is random, there is no hope. Right? There, is, there is no possibility of a pattern or, or that things are starting to look up. You can't say that I'm on a good trajectory because if everything's random, you can't be. You don't know what tomorrow is going to be. One day may be fantastic and the next day may be the worst of your life. Just afloat on a raft of chance going wherever the wind blows that there is no hope. And pretending that you have some control over it is an attempt to create hope. As always, though, we should ask, what does the Bible have to say about all this? The truth is, this is not new. This is not new. 
So please turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 65, whether that's in paper or on your device. Isaiah 65. And I would encourage you to <coughs> uh, read the whole thing when you get a chance. Um, I'm just going to summarize it and, and then really focus on two verses. But read the whole thing when you get a chance. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, God is speaking through Isaiah in this book. Or, well, and in, in this particular chapter, he's kind of summarizing a lot of things in this chapter. It really, it really hits everything in, in just that, in those verses there. So Isaiah 65. So God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Now remember, Isaiah is writing about 700 years before Jesus. All right, so uh, it's always good to, to keep track of where these prophets are writing because then the things that we read about that are prophecies of the coming Messiah, we can say that was 700 years before uh, Jesus even arrived. So Isaiah is writing about that, and uh, he's addressing the children of Israel. So this is God addressing the children of Israel through Isaiah, and, and, and God is, is, is talking about how they have turned their back on him. You know, the, 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 what they have done to wrong him and how they had started seeking other gods in violation of the first commandment, which is thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, Pete talked about this a little bit this morning about, you know, idolatry. Uh, some, of the, some of it really, really ties into to what we're talking about today. And, and as God is outlining through Isaiah, what religious rituals towards false gods in which they, they've partaken. He's calling them out. God's calling them out on it. He says something interesting in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. All right, I'm just going to stop at 11 right at this moment. But I want you to see something, because we've just been talking about this, right? It's the goddess fortune, right? Actually, we see two false gods here, fortune and destiny. In Old Testament Israel, uh, apparently in the original Hebrew, these would have been uh, Gad and, and many, M-E-N-I, Gad and many, which, which were most likely Jupiter and Mercury, which, which if you really want to get into all this, right, so if you're familiar with astrology, so it's the idea that the planets control what happens. Like these are all ways that the world is trying to figure out why do things happen? Why do they flow the way they do? So, so it gets all mixed up into this astrology and then these, these gods of fortune and, and destiny that, that the idea is if you can appease them, if you can make these gods and goddesses happy, they will, they will give you what you want, Right? So this has been going on for a long, long time. And, and Isaiah would have been writing, like I said, 700 years. And he, they, look, they would have all been familiar with it. But this is the God's people, the children of Israel. They're the ones partaking. And, and what it is, it, when it says setting a table for fortune, what that means is they used to have a table set out and they would put the sacrifices on it. Here, fortune. Here, here's our, our, uh, our sacrifices to you. And filling cups for destiny would have been pouring out cups of specific types of alcohol and drinks as an offering to her. So one commentary that I read said that the reason that this is included is that God is pointing out to the Israelites that they spare no expense in trying to appease these false gods. That, that they will do anything in order to be, appease these false gods. 
Now, for our purposes, I want you to see the similarity between these verses written 2,700 years ago and life in 2022. Right? The Israelites were believing that they could change or manipulate their luck if they just made offerings to these false gods. They weren't trusting in the true God. They were trusting in their ability to make happen what they wanted to happen. Now, this is really no different than the person who believes that positive thinking can change the present. Right? It's almost the exact same thing as putting a figurine in your house or putting a horseshoe over your, over your uh, doorway or, or, or moving your furniture to create a positive energy flow. This is a rejection of the truth of God and embrace of an evil form of idolatry. It's really the same thing. So I want you to see God's response that culminates in verse 12. So how does God respond to this? He says, oh, so you're, uh, you, you forsake the Lord. You forget the holy mountain, meaning, you know, uh, uh, Sinai. But, and you set a table of fortune, fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. And then look at verse 12. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Now, the first thing to, to recognize right here is, is this play on words, right? So basically, God is saying, oh, you want to offer wine to destiny? I will destine you to this word, right? It's a play on words. Like, he's, he's mocking it. He's making it clear that he is the one who controls destiny, not some impersonal force called destiny. And their payment will be death. Many will die because they have rejected the truth of God and embraced the lie of luck. Bowing down to the slaughter, as it says right here, means that they will have no alternative other than to reluctantly worship what they have wrought. They have brought it on themselves. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is reminding his people that believing in luck, fortune, and destiny is not just fruitless and pointless. It is a sin. It is evil. It is pretending that human beings can somehow control the world and everything in it. And I know our tendency, including myself, is to laugh at these people who buy into this foolishness. But it should definitely not be any part of our lives as Christians. We should take heed of the scriptures and reject the lie of luck. Instead, we should read our Bibles and see where the power truly is. Life is not a random set of events. God is in control and working with purpose, and that brings us to point number two. We should contend for the faith in the truth of God's sovereignty. We should contend for the faith in the truth of God's sovereignty. So, so sovereignty means complete and utter power, right? That power is absolute, and it answers to no one. That power is able to overthrow is not able to be overthrown or thwarted or stopped. All decisions belong to the one who is sovereign. In the case of God, we talk about his omniscience, which means he knows all things, his omnipotence, which means he has power over all things, and his omnipresence, which means he is everywhere at all times. God is sovereign over all. So think about it this way. Let's say you finally got your license and you are really pumped. Right? While you had your permit, you, you purchased your first car, you got it waxed, buffed, cleaned up. You're ready for that first day uh, that you can drive it on your own. So, so you go, 
you take your test, you know, one of your parents is with you, you pass the test, you, you say, Mom, I got to drop you off because, you know, I got to get out here, get my freedom, get my car, take it out, get a taste for what life's like going to be, being on my own, right? And after driving around for about 15 minutes, someone cuts you off, you over-respond, ultimately crashing into the guardrail and totaling your car. Hmm. You are despondent. Despondent means without hope. You are crushed. And although you walked away from the accident, all you had planned on doing in that car is now a distant memory. It's not going to happen. As word spreads around social media, there's at least one problem for you with this phrase, everything happens for a reason. Don't worry. Everything happens for a reason. Now, I find this to be one of the primary ways that the non-Christian world tries to do a combo of the spiritual and the worldly. Right? They can't say something like, well, life's just a random assortment of accidents and this is just one more. So it sounds better to say everything happens for a reason. But if you did ask them, why then did this happen? So tell me the reason. Well, they usually give you some vague answers or they'll, or they'll say something like some why that they don't even really know. They say, well, well, maybe you're supposed to get a better car. right? Or maybe you're supposed to be home for a few more weeks <laughs> hanging out with your mom. Maybe your parents need you. Now, as Christians, we don't have to guess. I mean, I think it's okay to, if somebody says everything happens for a reason, but, but I always question somebody when they say that. I say, based on what? Who's in charge of the reason? Who's in charge of controlling all this? As Christians, we don't have to guess. We don't even have to know why it happened. God frequently will reveal it, but, but even if he can always rest upon. And with that, please turn to Romans 8, 28 through 31. Romans 8, 28 through 31. And I put this on our little chart here. Because right, this would have been, this is where probably the worst gap, because Jesus, I mean, Romans would have been written not too long, tw within 20 years of Jesus being crucified, maybe 25 years. And not that close to Boethius. But. So Romans, you know who wrote that, right? Paul, he's writing it. And this is, this is one of the most famous and popular uh, uh, passages from the Bible, and it's, it is really important to know it. Uh, when I first started coming to Crossway, I was uh, invited to the leadership development course, at that, as it was called at that time, and uh, memorized a huge chunk of this, 28 all the way to the end of the chapter, because it's so good. And uh, I'm thankful for that. So let's, let's just take a look at it here, Romans 8. We're just going to go 28 to 31. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? This is one of the most important passages and you'll need to learn it because it is consistently it consistently redirects our thoughts back to God and his plans. He has given this to us in order to find peace no matter what we face and no matter how we feel. Right In this passage, Paul's writing to the Roman church where, where many members were dealing with persecution and suffering. You can see it right there in verse 18. He says, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then he goes on to talk about how even creation, the world, earth, and nature, and all that is in it, is joining with the human beings in groaning, in the, in, in, in the desire for the world that's to come, right? It's this groaning, like, ah, oh, how much longer? Even the, It's the idea, it's this personification of the world, like the earth is doing the same thing, like, please, like, when? Because, because there will be a new heavens and a new earth, when, that, when this groaning will end. God's people will live in peace and perfection with him. And this is all of mankind waiting for that day. All of us who are followers of Christ waiting for that day with hope. And that's why Paul follows up these thoughts from, from you know, the beginning up here at, at verse 18 all the way down, the groaning and so on. Then verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now do you see how this contrasts with the idea of luck? Do you see how this compares with the idea of fortune? Think about it. Fortune is portrayed as a blind woman on a rock that simply falls into a wheel and spins it so that whatever happens, happens. No plans, no purpose, no point. It cannot be examined. It cannot make sense. There is no hope in anything that is real or effective. But with God, there is a promise involved. God, the creator is promising that all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will see a time when their pain ends, their tears dry up, and they will live in never-ending joy with their Creator. This is the hope of the believer. Not in a change of current circumstances, but a future of eternal life with and through Jesus Christ. So, for those who love God, that means for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what has happened to them, what is happening to them, or what is going to happen to them, it is for their good and for a purpose. And the purpose is the glory of God. So Romans 8.28 becomes a summary verse of so many other verses and passages in the Bible about the sovereignty of God. I, I wrote a couple of them up there if you, if you want. I'm just going to go through them quickly. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I being God, I declare the beginning from the end and things not yet done. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I think that uh, this is a good verse that addresses what happens when, when the, uh, the dude perfect guys pull the name out of a hat. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast, but every decision is of the Lord. The lot would be like the dice, like something, something's cast. The decision is of the Lord. When Ty reaches in there and pulls out a name, it's not an accident. It's not random. Right? It's, it's God's decision. When they spin that wheel, whatever somebody gets stuck doing is not an accident. It's not random. It's not punishment. It's God's decision. Every Think about this. The lot is cast, but every decision of the Lord, every decision. There is no room for luck or fortune or manipulation of power. God decides every time. So let's go back to the new driver accident. Your first instinct might be that God isn't watching out for you. He had his, he had his head turned. Whoops, my bad. Sorry. Or your second instinct might be to, that, that God's mad at you. Right? I must have done something to tick him off, and now this is my punishment. And, and your third might be, well, well, why would God allow this to happen? That's when Romans 8.28 kicks in. You may not know or ever know why this happened. 
But the Bible's clear that for those who love God, all things are working together for your good. It doesn't mean that there isn't pain and sadness involved, because there is. There always will be. It doesn't mean that you will necessarily definitely come to understand why. Oftentimes we don't. It doesn't mean that there aren't lasting effects from whatever has happened, because there will be. Instead, it means two things. First, if we are believers, we can rest in the fact that God is using this for our good, even if it's bad. And secondly, there will come a day when things like this will not happen anymore. They will not happen anymore. So you might say, but, but how can something evil be a part of God's purpose and plan? How, is it, how can it possibly be for our good and his glory? Well, let's first be clear. God cannot commit evil. God cannot sin. So when evil things happen, they do not come by his hand. But God can and does allow evil things to happen. The best example of this is when his own son is crucified on the cross. God could have stopped it. He could have easily struck down all those who were persecuting Jesus and put an end to it, but he didn't. Listen, in, in Peter's sermon from the book of Acts, he makes it clear that this wasn't an accident. This wasn't something that slipped through the fingers of God. Just listen, just listen from Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. This is Peter. He's doing, a, he's doing a sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter indicates in this sermon that Jesus was given over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it and allowed it, his own son, to suffer and die on the cross. Why? For our good and his glory. We needed him to be our savior. And by him becoming our savior, God is magnified and glorified as many more come to believe in him because of it. And if you're not catching on, this is, this is incredible. This is something that can comfort us as we experience the good and the bad in life. We don't have to believe that it's fortune's fickle wheel. We don't have to make our own luck. We don't have to grasp at pointlessness. We have a Savior who suffered greater than we ever could. So we can be confident that as Romans 8 says, God is working all these things together for our good. So I just wanted to close with a, with a personal example from my own life because I think about it a lot when I, when I think of uh, Romans 8, 28. Because that, those words got me through uh, during that season of dis despair. Um, you may not know that uh, I felt an uh, internal call to pastoral ministry when um, I was about 35, which is long time ago now, uh, around 2005, and, you know, anytime you get an internal call to pastoral ministry, like, meaning, like, am I supposed to be a pastor? Is that what you're calling to me to, God? And I was doing some studying and so on. I'm like, maybe, maybe. So, so then you look for the external call, and external call is then when somebody else validates it, right? And, and who you really need and want to validate it is, is not your mom, right? <laughs> hey, mom, you think I should be a pastor? <laughs> Just get a job, honey, <laughs> you know. It, it's you go to a church, and you go to a church where they uh, evaluate 
uh, and they evaluate hard because you don't want to make that mistake, right, getting into pastoral ministry. So part of the reason we came to Crossway uh, was because I knew that the evaluation process here was about as rigorous as it can get. Um, Sovereign Grace as well, you know, more broadly at, at, at when we were working uh, under that umbrella. So we came here for that reason, and or not just that reason. There's other reasons involved, but um, and things tracked well. And in 2012, and I already Doug, just in case you're just like, <laughs> so in 2012, uh, there was a possibility of uh, having me uh, be a church planter, and uh, was asked about that. That's what I really felt like. Yes, that's what I'm called to. If you're talking about pastoral ministry, that's what it seemed. Yes, in that direction, church planting. I, that, I've been a part of two church plants. I, I just thought, yeah. So we put, the, we put things in motion, which at that time, you, you, you probably don't remember this, but, but Sovereign Grace was moving from um, Maryland down to Louisville. The pastor's college was, gonna, was starting a little bit later, which gave us an opportunity to try to get in. Um, because this was all moving pretty quickly, um, and uh, you have to get evaluated. You got to do sermons that that are recorded, that are then sent to to um, the higher ups. Um, you know, you have to have your you have to have your local pastors be on board, but then you also have to have kind of like a regional thing, and then even beyond that, sometimes depending. And you, you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a fairly rigorous process. But but it, all things pointed to this happening, um, to the point that. Um, uh, it, you know, I was asked to apply to the pastor's college, which I did, uh, was accepted into the pastor's college, uh, which wasn't starting until uh, January of that year. Uh, so uh, this was probably somewhere around September. Uh, and, you know, we had to put it in motion. So I, I had to look for somebody to rent my house because we were going to have to move to Louisville. Um, because I worked in schools, I, it, it felt like it was necessary for me to give them a heads up because... I, was, I would be leaving in a couple of months, and, and I had contracts with them for the year. Um, and and, and all, all, everything was pointed in that direction. We were waiting on one, one last little piece. Uh, and that last little piece came in, and it turned out to be a no. And it was, well, I should say that it was a maybe. And Pete said, we can't send a guy to Pastors College on a maybe. Uh, we, we needed a grant from Sovereign Grace in order to plant the church. Uh, we couldn't do that on a maybe. We needed a yes or a no. And if it's maybe, it's a no. So all of this then begins crashing down. Uh, you know, part of it is emotionally, you know, thinking like, you know, this, if 2005 is when I felt this internal call, this would have been 2012. So, uh, you know, you're looking at seven years later. And... What started happening then was because I had told these schools that I was going to be probably or potentially leaving, uh, I became a potential budget cut because it's like, well, even if Quay doesn't leave this year, he'll be leaving soon. And Penn Manor cut me from their budget, which was my primary, uh, everything else that I did in my career hinged on those two to three days a week that I was at Penn Manor. So suddenly this anchor, job that I had is now, I mean, I was told I'd have six months notice if something like that was going to happen. I got six weeks notice. Um, so, uh, you know, without getting into all the details, you know, hopefully you can feel this is crashing down. 
uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a husband and a father. I got mortgage to pay. I got, I got kids. Uh, fourth on the way at the time, I believe. Uh, it was right before Violet was born. Crashing down. So my father-in-law at the same time is is looking for someone because his business is expanding. So I end up working for him two days a week, which takes the place of my two days a week at Penn Manor. But now I'm, I'm moving in the opposite direction of, of the things that I thought I would be doing in, in my life and career. Well, uh, not long after that, my father gets cancer, brain cancer. And where my father-in-law lives, his business is approximately a quarter of a mile from my parents' house. And suddenly, my dad's got brain cancer. Two years to live from the day they, they diagnose it, it, it was untreatable. He's going to die. And they said, generally, it's two years. So I get this job with my father-in-law. I find out my dad has cancer. Now, on, in one sense, that's kind of the last straw of the, the crash, so to speak. Well, I'm in the southern end working for my father-in-law at least two days a week, which means that every day after work, you know, we start super early, so I'm done by like noon, 2 o'clock every day. I go down and hang out with my parents. Go down and hang out with my dad. And those last two years with my dad, I probably spent more time with him in those two years than the 20 prior. And my dad told me stories I had never heard in all my years my dad had nothing else to do. My dad was always a busy guy, always heavily involved in the church. The church released him of everything. He was retired, and I would go down and hang out with my dad. And we would just talk and tell stories and, um, you know, talk to, we, he talks a lot about Jesus. He brought me into the world. He can take me out whenever he wants. And, and eventually my dad, my dad died almost two years uh, to the day. It was one year, 11 months. And if I would have been planting a church, that diagnosis would have come while we were in Louisville, I believe, and um, or, or close to it. And, and when, when my dad would have been in the midst of it, we would have been trying to plant a church somewhere else, not, not around here. So the idea of me trying to get to see my dad like two to three days a week would have been really difficult in the middle of a church plant out of town. Like, how, how is that going to happen? How would have that have happened? I would have, I would have missed. I would have missed it. Right? My dad's last two years. Well, in the moment, in the midst of it, when you, you, you think of, like, this dream that seems to be dying and, and now losing this job that's been your anchor and, and all these other things, looking back now, it was for my good, for my dad's good, and for the glory of God. And, and I'm not promising that it's always going to happen that way. But, but then what starts to happen is you start to say, well, hold on a second. Like, how did I suddenly get a job? I get laid off from, from my primary job, and, and then I get another job that, that filled it in exactly, you know, making just about the same amount of money. Like, there, there was no blip. And, and, you know, there's a lot of other things I could share with you within that. When, when the time came then, when my father-in-law's business started, he didn't need me anymore. Uh, I suddenly signed on with Solanco, out of, somewhat out of the blue, and, and be, go back to what I, doing what I love. And part of it, too, is like reevaluating, well, what am I called to? Um, what, 
where do I need to be? And it's, it's this opportunity to, to reevaluate and then get a chance to meet all you guys. Right? So it just doesn't always look like what you think it's going to look like. And it may look like the worst thing in your life. And Lord willing, he'll give you an opportunity to look back and say, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. I'm not promising that'll be the case. There's probably many times that that's not the case. But, but this is where our faith and our hope comes, is that God's working all things together for our good and, for our good and his glory. So just three quick things. Should a, should a Christian say good luck? Uh, I generally don't think so. Uh, I don't think it's a sin. But I generally, I, I'm trying to move away from it, but it's so, it's so hard. Like, what else do you say? Like, hey, I got a big job interview. You know, we can say it when something happens to us. You're like, I feel so blessed. Right? You don't say, I, don't, I, don't, I feel lucky. You say, I feel blessed. But what do you say to somebody like that they're going to their job interview? Be blessed. <laughs> a blessing on you. I guess you could say that. Um, I guess you could say something like, I hope it goes well, right? Because my hope is in uh, the new heavens and new earth. So that hope, I don't know. Uh, but I don't know. I try, I try to stay away from saying good luck. Even things like, fortunately, things went really well. Or unfortunately, I can't come tomorrow. Uh, because I don't believe it. Like, you know, and I, again, I'm not saying it's a sin. And it's just part of the way we say things. So. Uh, the second thing I have is, is, is it wrong to have superstitions? Uh, yes. I think yes. If, if I'm wrong on some of this, Doug, feel free to jump in. So I think it's wrong to have superstitions. Um, if you are, if you think that you're somehow manipulating the world uh, because of some pattern that you have, then then you're you're just like these Israelites who think they're manipulating fate and destiny and, and fortune. Okay. So so yes, if if I say reject it, run. I say run. It's idolatry. Like run in the other direction. But if you have a pattern of preparation, I don't think that's quite the same thing. I, I do know that I, I thrive on what I would call a, pr- a, a pattern of preparation, knowing that God will do what he wants to do, right? So I think you can do that. And if, if, if any parents, if you think I'm off with that, then feel free. You can tell me now or tell me later. But um, I, I, do, I do think a pattern of preparation, like making sure you're ready to do something. Because, you know, the Bible's clear that we're not supposed to just sit back and let things happen. Like, you're supposed to get a job. You're supposed to pay your insurance. You know, there's things you're supposed to do. So, um, anyway. So, I think a pattern of preparation, meaning, like, this is the things I like to do that helps me get ready and so on. None of it, none of it do I think is changing things. God will still do what he wants to do. He may give me the best day, even though I didn't prepare, and he may give me the worst day, even though I did everything I wanted to do, but uh, in preparation. So, um, so uh, but if you think your lucky socks are winning the game, Take them off. Put on something else. You know, kill that idol. Wreck it. Uh, so does that mean, does that mean everything is truly under God's command and watch? Yes. Uh, this is an, always an easy truth to embrace, right? Especially when bad things uh, happen or what we see as bad things happen. Um, you know, I, when we were, when we started coming to Crossway, we're not going to be doing our... Um, Discussion groups, just so you know, because you're probably, how, how long is this going to go? Um, when we were coming to Crossway, we were explaining our change in theology and why we were coming here. And um, 
our change in theology was moving towards reformed theology. They, they, you know, God saves. We don't save ourselves, you know. And uh, this guy was fighting us on it, you know. Dear brother that just, he just did not want to embrace that theology. And I said, so, so are you saying he doesn't know these bad things are going to happen? And he says he doesn't want to know. He doesn't want, God doesn't know what he doesn't want to know. And I'm like, how can you call him God? Like, like how can you say that? Like, like, we only have two options, right? Either God is in control of all things. He knows all things. He has the power to stop or allow anything that he wants. Or he doesn't. If he doesn't, then he's not God. He's not the God that we're worshiping. He's not the God of the Bible that we read about. So God can, can always do something. We may not always understand why, but God can and does. Uh, he decides all the time. Uh, and lastly, uh, better days are truly coming, a new heavens and a new earth. That's why I want you to read Isaiah 65. The, the last chunk of that is a new heavens and a new earth. Um, that's what it's titled. The, the whole passage, the reason why I love that whole passage is because it goes through Here's Israel, they're, they're set aside, chosen by God, they're his people. But, but the, the first few verses talks about how God is going to save a people he, he didn't know, like people who didn't know him. He's talking about the Gentiles. It's a prophecy for the future that God is going to save the Gentiles. It's in this passage of the Old Testament. He's like, I'll reach out to the people who didn't know me, who didn't know my name. So he's talking about the Gentiles, so it's a prophecy in that way. Then it's this rebuke of the sins of Israel then it gets down to the bottom of, about a new heavens and a new earth. And there's, there's, a double, there's a double in there. There's two things that it presents. One thing it presents is basically that Jerusalem will be restored. Like the, the true Jerusalem, like, like true meaning like the, the one here on earth that's in actuality where the Jews are living, right? There'll be, there'll be Jerusalem will, will come back, basically. But it's also a reference and a pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Right? When, when Christ returns and, and we will be finally at peace. Uh, so he talks about peace in Jerusalem. He's talking about there, but he's also talking about the peace when, heavens, when, when Christ returns. So uh, read that whole thing. If you have never put your faith in Christ, see, this is the hope you can have. Right? Life isn't this random set of things that are happening to you over and over again. The bad things that happen to you, it's not God has forgotten you. He may be drawing you to himself, and that means you, you say that, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against God. You repent by turning your back on your sins, and you say that the only way that I can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who died on the cross for my sins was resurrected three days later, who ascended into heaven 40 days after that. If I put my faith in him, that he is my substitute, you'll be saved. That's all you got to do. Then you enjoy the new heavens and the new earth as well. Your day of peace will come. Let's pray.